You know, last week I spoke about Avos Yisrael and really went into it in terms of what the panemius of Avos Yisrael and why it's so important and so on, you know, uh, and so on, you know. What um, what I thought I would speak about this week is, you know, a lot of people would love to know what exactly is Judaism all about. You know, can Judaism be described, uh, you know, in, in a sheer in terms of what is the overall game plan of Judaism? <clears throat> you know, now, now we know that obviously the essential idea is the Tariq Mitzvah, you know. Uh, so let me just, before I begin, uh, let me just say that uh, this year should be a merit and a blessing uh, for the health and success of the family of Reuven, uh, Regina Bas Yosef Reuven and Yeshaya ben Yisrael and Benjamin Wolf ben Tzvihash and Boruch ben Benjamin Wolf. Also, it should be a tremendous alias neshama of Aaron Chaim Elio ben Boruch Leib and that uh, they should all receive tremendous amount of merit for uh, the um, thousands of people that I know that listen to the Shuram. In any case, so a lot of people wonder, you know, everybody has a fragmented view of Judaism. You know, some people look at uh, doing chesed as the main idea of Judaism. Uh, Some people look, of course, at learning Torah uh, as the essential idea of Judaism. And then there are people, of course, that look in general at Tariyag Mitzvah, 613 commandments. So there's no question that Judaism has many, many facets. You know, like a diamond has many facets. Judaism has many essential facets. Uh, but the truth is, you know, it would be very worthwhile and valuable to have a, an overview, an understanding in general of what is the Rabbani Shalom really doing? What was in his mind, so to speak? You know, what did he want? What is in his mind? What is his plan in an overall way? And then all these ideas is really just part of the game plan. So the question, of course, is, you know, what part do they play? But really, what is the overall a purpose or a strategy of what the Rabbanism really wants. You know, so I thought that we that's really a very valuable idea. And when we begin to think about that, we realize, you know, what really the Rabbanism really wants. And Judaism is really the progression of this strategy. So it's very worthwhile to really, like I say, have an essential uh, understanding of what Judaism really is all about. So, when you think about it, it's very interesting what the Rebbeinah really wants, you know. I would sum up, if I had to sum up, you know, what Judaism is all about, what it really is, is this following statement. Judaism is really a process, a program 
of existential transformations. That's really what it is. What does it mean by existential transformation? Well, if you think about it, there is an existence, and that existence has certain characteristics, you see. Now, there are different qualitatives in terms of existence. We could certainly say the existence of an insect is vastly inferior to the existence of an animal, which itself is vastly inferior to the existence of man, you see. <clears throat> so we see that existence in and of itself has a certain level of characteristics, and there are differences in terms of superiority and inferiority. <clears throat> so what the Rosham decided, which is really very interesting, is that he would create different existential states. You know, just different types, levels, dimensions, or realities of existence. That's what he would do. <clears throat> and what he wants is he wants an entity, namely mankind, and especially the Jewish people, to change their existential levels. And that in and of itself would constitute the hatova, the goodness that he wants to give. <clears throat> and that's really what it is. It is a program of movement, shift, where one ex existential state, which means one type of existence, merges, merges into another. But that other is vastly superior than the existence of the former, and so on. So you begin at a certain level, let's call it, you know, level one, and you start to go up and up, and finally you reach a level of existence, right, uh, which is unbelievably superior to the number one, you see. In fact, we can almost say that number 10, if that would be the top, would be an existence, right, that, that is so superior to level one that at the level of one, if a person existed at existential state of one, he could not even comprehend the type of existence of level 10. So what the Barsham did, and, and, and the level of existence, as it changes in his movement, you see, uh, is the real purpose of the whole program. But what he decided is, is this, and that's a very important idea, is that obviously mankind, and very importantly, specifically, or not solely, the Jewish people, they would be the entity that would move from one state to another, you see. And they would have some type of trigger or some type of device that would enable them to move from one existence to another. Because without that, how would they do it? So the Rebbeinu would provide them with some type of a trigger that if they initiated or if they involved themselves in that trigger, 
they would actually do the job of transforming their existence into a higher existence. And then if they continued, it would go higher and higher and so on. So that, if you look at it, is the overall game plan of what the Rabbanu Shalom wants. That's the general, as they say, tochnit, the general purpose, you see, and the general logic of what he wants. That's all it is. It's, it's nothing more complex than that, you see. <clears throat> and obviously it means that if there's a higher level of existence, then we could say that the higher level of existence that a man would aspire to is called perfection or shlemus. <clears throat> you see. So there would be a level of existence that could be designated as perfect. Sholem, shlemus means completion. And that in and of itself would be that which God wants to give the Jewish people. You see. It's really quite simple when you think about that. Now, the second thing that God decided was that a person, a person who is the entity designated for this shift, right, has to do the job. In other words, the shift in existence to a higher level has to be initiated, right, by the person himself. The Bajan will not do it. I mean, he will place him at, let's say, level one. But in order to go to level two and then three and then four, which we'll take a look at, he has to do it. <clears throat> he is responsible to move himself from one existential level to another. Now, I know I'm being very general, but in an overall sense, that's really what it's all about. What is interesting is this also, is that he doesn't have to do more than going from level one to level two. To go from level one to level ten, right, is not the responsibility of the person. But he has to initiate the movement, and he has to go from level one to level two. That's it. The one who will bring the person from level two all the way up to level ten is the Rabbanishloidim, which is interesting. Uh, so the task doesn't become what's called onerous, you know, burdensome or impossible, because he really has to do is to initiate with a, a certain, you know, significance, let's say from level one to level two or maybe to level three, but that's it. Then the Rabbanishom will do the rest. You see? It, it's almost like, you know, if a guy wants to go up the Empire State Building, used to be the World Trade Center, you know, but he has to initiate, and he cannot take the elevator, right? So the task is that you need to, and, and let's say the amount of floors is 110 floors. Well, he's going to try, so he'll go for the first 10 floors, right? And then after 10 floors, he's exhausted, right? So what does he do? So when he gets to the 10th, the, uh, 10th floor, he still has what? He's still another 100 floors to go. All of a sudden, he finds that there's an elevator that goes from floor 10 to floor 110. So all he has to do is get in the elevator, and up he goes. It's the same idea. We only have to initiate, you know, the first uh, level or maybe second level of the 
change in existence. And then the Rabbanu will do the rest. So all our effort really is applied for the first or second level of transformation. That's a very important concept. So it becomes much easier, you know, as a result of that. So that's really what the game plan is. The game plan is to have an entity, a human, you know, uh, who is designated as the person which will be the subject of the transformations of existence. And he has to engage in some type of, you know, activities or actions, right? And they will trigger the beginning of the movement. And then he will go higher. And the existential levels becomes the consequences of his work, you see? And in many ways, since he has to initiate, that means the reward or the consequences of what he receives is in the change of existence. That's all it is. But apparently that's all you need. So what the Rambam obviously has to do is create different levels of existence. And then he tells mankind, okay, you're on your way. You see? So the transformation of existence is what occurs as a result of the triggers that man does, you see. Now, what is it basically that man does that becomes a trigger for the ascent to different existential levels? And that is what's called the Taryag, you see. There are 613 commandments, and they are a trigger to move a person from one, one level to a second or perhaps to a third, and then stop. After which, <clears throat> once he has reached, you know, the end goal, so to speak, of the levels that he has to achieve on his own, then he does not have to engage in the trigger, which means he doesn't need the mitzvahs anymore because he's already reached the goal that was assigned to him. You see? That's a very important idea, you see. But general sense, we have a general sense of what is going on, you see. So, but this is the overall. And that is what Judaism is, like I said. It is a program of movement. And the program is to go from one existential level to a higher, to a higher and that itself is the manifestation of the incredible, incomprehensible, and infinite hatova, goodness, of what, what God wants to give. And our input is only the initial input. And then the Rabbana Shalom will do the rest. You see. So that's a very important idea. That basically is what Judaism is, uh, in, uh, in, in a nutshell, and so on. And apparently, that is all we need. We don't need anything else. All we have to do is change the level or the type of our existence. And that in and of itself is the greatest state of all, in whatever, however you can imagine it. It's the greatest pleasure, you know, the greatest pleasure. It lacks nothing. It is devoid of any, uh, you know, um, 
absence of anything. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no disease. There's nothing negative. On the contrary, it has everything you need for a perfect existence. You see, nothing will be missing. So therefore, you don't need anything external. You see, the level of existence that you will have is a understanding of who you really are, your own being, the nature of reality, the nature of who you are. You will understand your own existence, how you exist, why you exist, and so on. And apparently in that is uh, a tremendous amount of uh, goodness. You know, in a certain sense, if you ask yourself, what, what's the best thing, or what was the greatest time you ever had? And when you think about it, what I believe is the greatest time is the concept of well-being. Do you ever all of a sudden have a feeling that you just felt great? I think uh, in English you can call it the zone. You know, you were in the zone where you felt fabulous, you see? And you just, uh, you know, that's the concept of well-being. Think about that. You didn't need anything. You know, you didn't need to be, uh, you know, a great dinner or some external device. You felt fabulous. That was the feeling you had. So that's an extraordinary feeling of well-being. That really, uh, and that's really just, that is an existential state, right? Now imagine if you had that feeling of an extraordinary sense of well-being, right? And you had it eternally. Would, would you not think that this is it? This is perfect. I don't need anything else. Well, believe it or not, that's basically what happens. You will experience an extraordinary sense of well-being. You see? That, therefore, becomes the greatest level of existence. And that itself will be eternal, you see. And it has everything that is positive and nothing that is negative, you see. So this is the game plan. The only thing is that the Bansha wants you to initiate the first round, as they say, or maybe there's two rounds, right, of the... Uh, the mechanism that is required, which is uh, which is the Taryag, you see. And if you do that, then you will have that experience. Now, the Bershom also has provided what's called ikuvim, or restrictions. Because there are things that you have to do to get this existential transformation, right? And then there, there are things that you don't have to do. You have to avoid because they create what's called blockages, you see. So what the Rosham did, because he wants mankind, certainly the Jews, to have this, he made it possible to remove the blockages in case a person has that, right? And that's the concept of not doing the Taryag, you see. So what he did is he created a concept called Tshuva, you see. And if a person doesn't do tshuva, then he created another concept called yisurin, or suffering. So those two things, 
tshuva, which basically means charoto, regret of what he did, right? And the concept of suffering, if a person doesn't do tshuva, those things will remove the blockages or the fact that a person will not move forward. So that's removed. But the taryag itself, what they do, is ultimately they will allow a person to move from one existence to a higher, to a higher, until you reach a level of existence which is incomprehensible. And believe me, the Rabbanisham can deliver whatever he wants. And in the end, he will deliver what you cannot even begin to imagine, you know, just for initiating the, what he wants. And once that begins, then there's no, no more necessity for mitzvahs because it's not, like I said, there's no necessity. You're already there, you see. So that basically is the game plan, uh, which is what I've tried to, uh, to show, you see. Now, if you think about it, there are certain stages which I'd like to go through, you see, that, will, that man, a person, has to go through, and these are basically the concept of stages, you see, which have a lot of parallels. So I'd like to describe those stages. But before I do that, because they will parallel the different types of existence, you see, so basically, and I, I've said this before, but now I'm actually talking about the existential states. So I'd like to just mention briefly what they are, which like I say, uh, I've said before, but now I'd like to speak about them in, in, more, in more detail and so on. So the greatest ex existential state is called divinity. Elokus, divinity. It's where you actually experience the Rabbanu Shlolem himself. You actually experience that. Now, we don't have no idea what that is, primarily because we don't know who God is. We have no idea what his level of existence is, what type of existence he has. We don't know what that is. But whatever it is, that level of Elokus is incomprehensible to us, but it clearly is the greatest state of all. It's complete shlemus, which is complete perfection. So to ex we cannot now, we, we cannot be that. We cannot in any way replicate or duplicate that level of existence. Okay? But what we can do is we can experience in some manner that level, you see, because in the end, we are really emergence of God. We emerge from the Rabbanishlam, <clears throat> you see, because all level of existence, no matter what there is, emanates from God, you see. So if he wants, he can have us experience him <clears throat> at some level. So the level of experience or reality called elokus, divinity, is the highest experience that we can achieve. And that is the level that ultimately <coughs> God has in mind for us. 
good. Now, that level is so lofty that it cannot in any way be duplicated, you see. But like I said, it can be experienced at a certain level. And like I said, that is the, that is the ultimate game plan that God wants is to, uh, for us to experience in some manner, which we will know in the future, something akin to what God experiences. I say akin because don't even think that it, it duplicates the level of existence of God. So let's call that level the level of elokos, of divinity, you see. In fact, we see that in the, there's a uh, yom every day of the week, and on Tuesday, it says in, Dovara Melech says in Tilam, Bnei Elohim Atem, you know, you are like God. What is he saying? Because ultimately, we have the ability to achieve that level of elokus. And we can actually be called, you know, God, not literally, but in a figurative way, you see, that we will actually experience that. Um, in any case, and that is why, by the way, that the neshama is called a chelik l'kaimimau. We are part of God in a way which we do not understand. And to experience God means to experience how we are part of Him, even though we, re we remain separate from Him. You see, so that's really the greatest state, level of elokus. Now, the second existential state is one below that, and that is a level where we experience the greatest type of feelings or whatever you want, existence and so on, you know, where we do not experience elokus, and that is called the level of zulosoi. In other words, the experience of God or God, His existential level, is so great that nothing exists besides God. It's called Enoid Mulvadoi. So, besides God, there is nothing really. And I want to give a whole share of who is God, and it's in two parts if you'd like to listen to it. In the level of God, there is nothing. He's the only thing that exists. That's how profound, that's how perfect that the nature of God is. So what God did is he created a vacuum, so to speak, where some aspect of him allows something else to exist. You see, and that's what he did. And he created a certain operation called Simpson, which is where he absented himself where he can allow something to exist, Zulosoi, besides him. Now, we have no idea how he did that or what it even means. But this is a concept called Zulosoi, which is a level of existence which is completely sublime. You see, it's not the level of Elokus, but it is a level where it's an astounding type of existence. And that is the level of neshama. So the neshama automatically, in and of itself, even without being experiencing the concept of elokus, which it will experience ultimately, but just by itself, it has this tremendous amount 
uh, or an in, incredible superiority of being. So that would be the second level of existence. And that the Nishama has. Then there's a third level of existence, which I mentioned once. It's called Ruchnius, spirituality, you see. And spirituality means what? Is that it is some type of existence, right, which is vastly superior than the uh, spirituality that we know of, which is physical and so on. And as we will see, you know, who are these type of beings that are spiritual? Those are basically angels, basically angels. So they have a spiritual reality, which is different than ours, but it's nowhere near as great as the Nishama in terms of what it is in existence, you see. So that would be a third level of existence, the type of characteristics, the existence of spirituality, spiritual beings. So like I say, the Nishama is much greater than the uh, Malachim or the angels, but they are spiritual and as such, they are vastly inferior to the physical reality. Then there's another reality, which is called Geshem. It's called the physical world. It's not spiritual, but it is physical, you see. But it is physicality at an incredibly superior level. And that itself is a tremendous level of spirituality. And I'm going to talk about, you know, who, uh, who exists at the, what, what are the resonance of each level of existence, of, of, uh, and so on. Then there's a level where there are beings that are basically evil, evil in the sense that they wish to do harm. You see, they are damaging agents, you see. So that is a, another level. So, to sum up, the highest level of existence is divinity, is, is Elokos. The second level of existence, right, is the Neshama, which is called the Zulosoi, which, other than being part of God, has an unbelievable type of existence. Then there's the spiritual, then there's the physical, and then there is the world of beings that are damaging, negative, right? These are the types of beings, and the ones who are, uh, are part of that is called the Sitra Achra, the Sotan, what's called also Malchi Chavolo, angels of destruction, and also Shadim, right? You see. So, therefore, we have, how many do we have? Elokus is one. Then we have Zulosai. Then we have Ruchnius. We have Geshem, right, physicality. And then we have uh, the world of the Sitra Achra, Satan, which is also called the world of the Zoyama, because that is a projection, in some sense, of the world of Sitra Achra, which means the other side. So you basically have five different types of existence. Now they also have levels of existence, for instance, in the fourth world, which is the level of Geshem, right, you have different types of physical beings, right? You have uh, insects, 
right? You have uh, animals, plants, and so on. So that is a level of existence. So even in the world of physicality, you have differences. So there are obviously many subdivisions in general, you see. So let's take a look. Uh, and that is that when you think about it, there are basically five different stages of a person in order to achieve that which he wants to achieve. And that is to earn a trigger where he can actually, you know, uh, transform the, uh, the necessary existential transformations. Let's take a look. If you think about it, man is a developmental, you know, uh, program. There are basically what seems to be five programs, developmental programs, that an individual has, mankind has. Let's take a look. And these seem to be very, very, uh, what is called significant. So the first thing, and this really is what happens. We have mankind, the first stage. And that is a stage of an embryo. Now an embryo is very interesting because an embryo is basically, you know, it's physical, but it, it's growing to be physical. It's really mostly spiritual. The neshama itself, right, whoever it is, basically it has a physical thing, but it grows, right? It has to develop. So then what is it? It's mostly spiritual. It's mostly neshama. In fact, what is interesting is that in the neshama itself, right, we know that there's a malach that actually teaches the neshama while it's in the uterus. You see? So obviously it doesn't have much physicality because it's growing. But it does have, the, uh, the neshama does have its awareness of what it is. And the malachim itself, right, has, uh, the, the, each person has a neshama, or I should say, has its own teaching. So every neshama is taught by a malach in terms of what its mission ultimately really is. So when you think about it, the first stage is where the neshama is basically spiritual. It's neshama, you see, and it has very few physical substances because it's developing. It is, you know, um, it's taught, right, and develops as an embryo in the nine months and so on. And then it becomes physical. But what it really mostly is spiritual. It's neshama. So that's the first thing. Now what that really means is that the Rosham wants it to know what it will be in the end. You see, it doesn't want the neshama to be dark where it's, you know, obtuse really what's going to be. In the beginning, the neshama itself knows what it is and that it's ultimately what it has to be is to develop itself. So it is spiritual. So it knows it's spiritual, right? 
and it knows ultimately that it will become that. You see, it's almost like if you want to know a test, so the first thing it will tell you is what is the test, which is what the Malach teaches, and how does it feel to be or to have the test. So that's the first thing, is that the Nishama has to know the end first before it becomes physical. Then the second thing is when the embryo is now completely, you know, filled or, you know, completely uh, made and so on, developed. So you have the second stage of existence of a nishama or the development of a human. And that is comprised of several sub-stages. You have the infanthood, when it's an infant, then toddlerhood, you see when it's a child, but much lower than a child, let's say it's uh, two years old or three years old or four. Then it becomes a child, it becomes pre-adolescent, and it becomes adolescent. And that is the second stage. So the first stage of the Neshama is when it's basically all spiritual. The second stage is when it's now physical, but it now has to develop. And there are two ideas of that second stage, which is what I said. Infanthood, toddlerhood, childhood, pre-adolescent and adolescent. What is the major task of these people? The major task is to find out who it is. That's what an adolescent's main task is. Who am I? What am I? You see? And also, what is my mission? It's called the identity you know, investigation. That's basically what that second stage is. is where the individual, the neshama, who is now physical, has to find out who it is, you see, to understand its mission, its identity. You see, and that is its major task, you see. And really it has, uh, in a certain sense, two different paths. The first path, it has to know, what is the truth? What is reality? You see? And the second thing, it has to know, you know, how, what is it, what, what, what is there to avoid? And what is there, what is its path? What is the mission? So that really is all the job of the adolescent. It seeks to understand its identity. That's the second. Then the third stage of development of a human is the actual adulthood. That is the time of growth. And that is what the Bansham wants. It wants it to grow in spirituality, what the truth is, you see, and to mature. And that takes place until, let's say, about 70 years old. So it takes place from, let's say, 18 or 20 till about 70. That is the main part, main time of growth. That's the adulthood. So that is the third stage of what a neshama has to do, you see. Then there's old age, let's say from 70, 75, or whatever, right? And that is a stage where growth is much less you see, 
it, and, 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 and it now begins to revert back to the old embryonic stage, physicality is diminished severely. person is old, his physicality is diminished. It's hard to walk, it gets person gets sick, becomes weaker, and so on, you see? But what it does have, it does have, you know, the growth, the maturity of the 40 or 50 years of the adulthood. So, therefore, the person now has old age, and that is the age where it's much less physical, like I said, and it is able to use the wisdom, the maturity of what it has done for its entire adult life, and actually and exercise, you know, the opportunity of living a spiritual life without the difficulties of the drives, you know, of the physical world or the, or the uh, adult world and so on. That's number four. So remember, we have the embryonic stage, we have the adolescent stage, we have the adult stage, and we have the senior stage, the old age stage. And then we have number five. And number five is the basically the last idea where the removal of physicality, and that is death, where the person dies, doesn't disappear, right? And he goes to Gan Eden, you see? And that is the, is the return to spirituality, which was in the beginning in the embryonic stage, where it was basically spiritual. So death is then obviously, you know, at a time of, let's say, Gan Eden, and it is then spiritual, you see. So those are the five different developmental stages. And this is the different levels or de of development of what the Rabbanism wants it to be, you see. Now, besides that, which I had mentioned, these five developmental stages, in order to achieve the ultimate mission, right, in order to therefore begin the existential transformation. Now that is later on. So we have, like I said, five stages, and then there begins the transformation of existence. And what that is that is called the Yemosa Mashiach, when all the Jewish people will do the tikkun and have gone through all the developmental stages, which is what I mentioned, right? Then the first stage of existential change or transference is the Moisa Mashiach, you see. And the person, or I should say all Klai Israel, in fact, the entire world will now change, you see. And therefore what it does is it will remove the first existential state. Now, I had mentioned something which is very important, and that is what God wanted, and this is Odom Harishan. Odom Harishan was pure physical, Geshem. He was spiritual, but he was physical, you see. And God wanted that to be the first level of an existential stage. <clears throat> but what he did is something which God did not want, really, 
except he had free will. So what Adam Harishan did, first man, he actually sinned. So what he did is he took the world of Geshem and he coexisted it together, he mingled it with the world of Zoyama. So the world of Zoyama, which not, never used to be part of the physical, so because he sinned, he actually existentially re, retransformed into a lower existence. So originally he was pure physicality without Zoyama. We don't even know what that is. There was no death, no disease. Odin was purely uh, spiritual, but in a way physical, even though we don't understand what that means, without uh, any kind of intermingling with the Sultan, you see. And all of a sudden, because of the sin, Odin Mauritian became, right, physical mixed with a pervasion, right, of the Zoyama, of the Sultan. So now, man moved down. He became existentially worse. So he had to start from that. So when we think about that, instead of starting at the level, existential level of physicality, it started at a much lower level where the physical world now became intermingled with the Zoyama, the Sitra Acho, the Satan, you see, Tuma, Klippa, I mean, whatever you want to call it, and so on, you see? So now mankind had to work from a much lower existential level and move up, you see? And that's not what the Bernstein wanted. So that's what happened with Adam. Adam Mauritian, without, you know, going through the elaborate ideas, right, he lowered the world to, a, like I say, a much lower existential level of Geshem together with, right, together with the Zoyama of the Satan. So therefore, man now dies. There's a tremendous amount of evil, negativity, right, death, disease, and so on. So it was a very different world. So what happened was, is therefore, for 6,000 years, the main idea, or less, whatever, the main idea was that he would have to remove the world, the existential level, right, from a uh, world which is Geshem, physicality, and Zoyama. He would have to remove the Zoyama and only have a level of existence with Geshem, but without Zoyama. No Sutton, no Tuma, and so on. And that would be incredible, you see. And that would be stage number six. So after the person went through the development of stages, he now began to experience the existential transformations. And the first one that I said, what was it? It was the, uh, the first uh, existential level, transformation, I should say, is Yemois HaMashiach, is the Messianic era. And that's what began. So I've descri described the developmental level of the stages of man, which is we now have. Now what is interesting also is that the history of the world mirrors that concept of the developmental stages of man. So we took a look at what the stages of man are in terms of the individual, and we saw that there are 
5. Now, when we take a look at the history of the world, we have the same idea, and they parallel the developmental stages of man. The first stage is where the Bershom wants to show a person when it is purely neshama, what it's like, what it can be. So he had Adam Harishan start off as pure Geshem without any evil whatsoever. He was basically physical, but it wasn't our kind of physicality. It was a physical world, right, that was without Zoyama. And we don't even know what that means. We have no idea what it is to have no Yetzirah. And his job was, to what extent will he seek the truth? And he, his job wasn't to fight evil. There was no real evil, you see. His job was, to what extent, how rapid would it be that he would fight to know the truth? So he was basically almost all spiritual, even though he was physical, but he was the highest level of physicality, right? And that's how he would start, as basically an ishama. But what happened, like I said, is obviously he fell, and he intermingled with the satan and the world of the tumor, of what's called the klipa, right? The zayama. He merged with that world, you see. So, therefore, he now goes through the, the uh, necessity of getting rid of the world of the Zayama. You see, so the first world is Adam Rishon before the sin. Then you had, uh, the second stage is Adam Rishon after the sin for the first 2,000 years. And that is the equivalent of adolescence, where they have to learn significantly what the truth is to discover, right? To discover and be enlightened what the true path is, you see, and how to worship God. So the world of adolescence, stage of adolescence, is equivalent to the 2,000 years from Adam all the way to Avram. Then you have the stage of adulthood, which is a stage of growth. And what that is, is that the world now became, right, the concept of the, 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 from 2,000 years until all the way 6,000 or almost 6,000. That's the growth. That's equivalent to the world of Avoido, adulthood, you see. And that is the era of the Jewish people, from Avram Avinu, the Ovis, the Shvatim, Mitzrayim, and the, the four kingdoms. Those are all the necessities of the Jewish people growing, maturing, right? And actually doing the avodah, the service, the mitzvahs, and so on. So that is the equivalent, right, of uh, uh, that, that is the equivalent of the adulthood itself. Then you have the, uh, the, the next stage Right, which is old age, which is basically a return to spirituality and a diminishment of physicality, that's the change. And that is the, basically the uh, Mashiach, you see, where the history of the world after the Tikkun is the Messianic era. And that's where you have all the wisdom and the spirituality of the Mashiach itself. 
you see. And then you have the last stage, which is a stage of death, right, in terms of the development. You have the concept of what's called zikuch. That is the actual process of existential transformations, you see, that has to occur. So again, you have five levels of historical movement. You have the chet of Adamarishim before the sin. Then the second thing is the 2,000 years from Adamarishim to Avram Avinu. And then you have Avram Avinu, the Jewish people, and the whole, uh, what do you call it, uh, movement toward the uh, Tikkun itself. Then you have the Messianic stage. And then you have what's called the Zikuch, purification, and that is the real beginning of an existential transformation. So there you have it. Those are the five, you know, stages of history, which are basically, in many ways, the equivalent of the developmental stage of an individual person, you see? Now, we know what the, uh, the existential levels are, where man begins the process and then God takes him the rest of the way, right? We have from, initially, there's Geshem and Zoyamo together, the mingling. Then we have the world is transformed into Geshem and that's really all we have to do, right? Which is physicality. And that's like Adam reaching before the sin, right? And that's the messianic process. Then the third messianic, uh, third uh, spiritual or existential level is Ruchni, the angels. Then we have the Zulosoi, right, which is above the whole concept of angels. And then Elokus. And Elokus, of course, happens in Olim Habo. Now, we, we know the, the residence or the denizen, right, of each existential level and they cannot move, they're fixed at that existential state, you see. So the denizens or the residents of the lowest existential state of the Geshem Zoyamo is, of course, the Sitra Achro, the Sotan himself. You have the Malchi Chavolo, the angels of destruction. You have Shadim, which are sort of like part man, part spiritual. Then you have the concept of the Klippus, the four Klippus, which I wanted to explain in the Shia on Pesach, right? The Tumah. That's all the world that we inhabit. They remain fixed. The Shadim, the Gesha, the, uh, the Satan, and the Malchi Chavola, they don't move. They remain at that existential level. We are the ones who move. Then you have the world existential level of the Geshem which is, you know, physicality without Geshem and Zoyamo, right? And that's basically, which is uh, really two sub-phases, you have the Geshem with mingling of the Zoyamo, and then you have the Geshem pure. But that is the biosphere. It has men, it has plants, it has animals, and so on. They don't move. Animals cannot in any way move forward at a different existential level. They reside there and they die there and that's it you see and by the way that's also called asiya the world of geshem is called the world of asiya 
You see, that's the lowest world. What's interesting is part of that world of Geshen, since it doesn't have Zoyamo, is also called, uh, there is a spiritual aspect of the physical world. You see? So there is, interestingly enough, an aspect of spirituality of the world of Asiya. One of them is you could see Nishamas. Because there's still an aspect of physicality. By the way, that's the concept of ghosts. You know, ghosts and uh, uh, other denizens of that world, which is sort of like partial physical and partial spiritual. But it's a lower level of spirituality, which is in the world of Asiya. Then you have what's called the uh, next world, is the world of the angels, which is the world of Ruchni. An angel cannot grow. It is fixed. Its existential state is fixed at that world. And that world really is two. It's called Yitzira, Olim Yitzira, right? The world of formation. And Bria, the world of creation. These are the angels that inhabit the world of Bria and Yitzira. And these are the world of the angels they're also fixed. They cannot move beyond an existential state of these two worlds. Then you have a higher existential plane called Atsilus. And that is the world of the Nishama, Zulosoi. But it's not the ultimate existential state that the Nishama can be. What comes after that, now all these ones I just mentioned, which is the four levels, Atsilus, Bria, Yitzir, and Asiyah. That is called Oilim Hazer. Then there's what's called Oilim Habo. Now what Oilim Habo is, it's not Oilim Hazer, obviously. Oilim Habo means the future world. But it is a world whose existential level is Elokus. It's divine. And that ultimately is what the Neshama becomes a resident of. Now, that world, the world of Olim Habo, you see, is not obviously Olim Hazer, but it is a world of incomprehensible existential reality. We have no idea what it is, as the Gemara says. We have never seen anything like that. Right? The eye has never beheld the reality of Olim Habo, which is also called in Kabbalah, Adam Kadmarin, which is primordial man. That is a level of Elokus, divinity. And it is the highest level of the Neshama. Therefore, what we see is very interesting. Each world, existential plane, right, has its own residence, or its own denizens, so to speak. They cannot move. They're fixed. The only entity that can move continuously, right, is the Neshama. And that's why the Neshama is an unusual being. Everything is fixed at its existential level, right? Which is what I mentioned, the different levels and so on. But the Neshama is a composite. It is the Neshama, which can become one with the, the divine, Elokus, but it's also merged with a Geshem. It's also merged with a physical reality. And not only that, it's merged with a mingling of the physical reality, 
which is the world of the Zoyama, the Sitrachor, the Satan, you see. And the Neshama is really a composite of two things. It is a Neshama, which can merge with God in that sense, the highest of all existential levels. And it's also a composite together with physicality. And what's even worse is that the physicality, right, is um, together with the Zoyama, you see. So we begin to see that there are basically always five things involved, five stages of man's development. That's his journey, right? Then there's five stages of history to do the Tikkun, right? Then we have five levels of existential realities, right? The different denizens or residents of these five realities. And I also told you what the names are Kabbalistically of these five different changes or five different levels of reality. You see, and what I will tell you is the time, right? So the level of Geshem together with Zoyama, right, till that ends, is basically less than 6,000 years. Hopefully it will end by 2030, which I've mentioned many times. That will be the end. 6,000 years is the maximum time allotted for a world dominated by physicality together with Zoyama. Then as part of that 6,000 years, you can have the Yemois HaMashiach, the Messianic world, right? The Messianic, uh, you know, uh, limit, a time, and so on, you know. So the Yemois HaMashiach really is equivalent to Adam Rishon before the sin. We go back to what it was. And in that time, in the Messianic era, right, the Zoyama is completely removed and it's purely a world of Geshem. And we have no idea what that means. We did have a time when it was almost that. And that is when the Jews got out of Egypt, I had mentioned. It says, Nifzika Zoyama Shal Nochosh. What that means is that the Jewish people had the existence of the Sultan, the world of the Zoyama. But interestingly enough, the world of the Zoyama existed, but it was not mingled together with the Geshem. It had, the world of the Zoyama had no influence on the world of the Geshem. And uh, we, don't, we don't even know what that means. They were not human the way we are. Because the Zoyama, even though it existed, could not influence the Geshem. The Jews had evicted or extracted the Zoyama from having any kind of influence over their bodies. That was the only time we had ever achieved. And now that we are in the middle of what? Of the level of the spheres, we count 49 days. Every day is a removal of one aspect of the Zoyama until the 50th day when the Zoyama is evicted and had they not done the Cheto Egel, then that world of the Zoyama would have been evicted, extracted from the world of Geshem. And then the Jewish people would be, be actually in a state of uh, not having to do the Taryag. In other words, they would have had the, the concept of the Torah at the level of Malachim, where they would not have to do it, you see. It would be only Zohar, not Shomor. Two different ideas. Zohar, remember, 
is a world of knowing the Hasog of the Torah. And when it says Shoma, to guard the Torah, that's the level where you have to do the Torah to remove the Zayama, you see. Two distinct stages. And unfortunately, the Chet Ego is what restored the intermingling of the Zayama together with the world of Geshem. But in any case, uh, this is what we see, you see. And the time limit, like I say, is Yimais HaMashiach, is like Odom Arishim before the sin, completely as if Odom Arishim before the sin did not sin, Tikkun would be complete, and in the year 6000, that would be the beginning of the existential transformation itself. You see, that means the human, the Neshama, its physical body would become Ruchnius. And that's the equivalent from uh, until 6,000, like I said, is to remove the world of the Zoyama and to remove the world of Geshem. From six to 7,000 years, right, that is the world of Yitzira, which is Ruchnius. And then the Shoma then removes the Geshem or diminishes it severely and from uh, seven to eight, it turns into Bria, you see, where the Neshama now has the physical concept which is severely diminished, and that's the world of Ruchni, you see. And then we have from eight to nine thousand years, and that, the Neshama becomes the existential state of the world of Atsilos, you see, which is the greatest form of existential state of the Neshama in this world. And then from the year 9000 until eternally, the world turns the extension of the uh, turns into what is called Olim Habo, or what's called Adam Kadmoin, you see. And that begins an existential state that we have no comprehension of what it is. And that completes the whole program, the game plan of what God wants. And like I said, what the Barsham wants, he wants a program where if you do certain things initially, it will change the existence of reality. And that's what a human being experiences to the extent where he now becomes a perfect state, shlemus, perfection. You see? And he now is enjoys uh, the greatest existential state that is possible. Now what's interesting, it's not that it, it happens. There's an existential transformation of the future world that happens once, and that's it. No. The future world itself is eternal. That means, it says, that a tzaddik doesn't have any menucho. He has no rest in Oilem Habo. What does that mean? Not that he does mitzvahs, but that the program of existential transformation continues upwardly forever. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how could there be an infinite amount of existential transformations. But that's exactly what happens. In Ilim Habo, it's not that there's one existential transformation into an entirely different world or reality, but that reality of existential transformations itself continues eternally. We cannot even comprehend 
the ex- existential transformation of Ilam Habo, how can we possibly understand what a transformation of existence continue, continuing infinitely? That means every second there's a greater transformation. The next second, a greater transformation. You see? That means existence transforms again con- continuously, you see. And we have no comprehension of what that means. It's an eternal existential transformation. And this is ultimately what happens in Oilam Habo, which is a very, very important idea. Okay, so we have a lot of things which I've gone through. They're all parallel to each other. They all figure, right? And how they're all interconnected. You see, and what's interesting is in Bracious, in the beginning, it says, Behi Borom, in God's creating, where it says God created, you know, heaven and earth and so on. I think it's the second pair. And it says, Behi Borom, right? Behi Borom, and He's creating them. And if you look, it really consists of two words. Behi, with five, Borom, He created them. You could divide the word. And I've just mentioned many things, right? I've mentioned the stages of man that parallel the history of man, the Tikkun process, right? The history of the five different existential states, the history, or rather the resonance or the denizens of those existential states, you see. And I've also talked about the time period of these existential states. So, what I, what I hope is that I've actually given the actual game plan of Judaism. And one thing I can say is that we are very close. And just to explain that, a very important idea to understand that in the end of time, what is the last thing that happens before the Mashiach comes? Is what God does is He wants to demonstrate what does the greatest amount of intermingling between the Sutton, the Zayama, and Geshem. We have now hit it. And the reason for that, why it has to be so, and that's why we are looking at such an incredible amount of unbelievable evil, corruption, depravity, decay, it's just incredible what's going on, is that we are witnessing what does it look like when mankind sees the ultimate mingling between the Zoyama world and the world of Geshem. So we will be able to appreciate, since we are now looking, we are looking at the lowest form, or I should say the greatest mingling of the Sutton, right? Together with the physical reality, the world of the Zoyama and the world of Geshem, you don't go lower than this, you see. So we're looking at it. So as a result of that, we will be able to contrast to go from this world, right, to the movement of the Mashiach, the world of Yemunisa Mashiach, that itself will be absolutely astounding. So he wants to give us an appreciation of what we're about to encounter. What does it look? What's the Messianic era? And I guarantee you, we have no concept even what the Messianic era will look like, it's unbelievable level of existence, you see? And we can appreciate that 
by looking at the lowest level of the world of the Zoyama, right? The world of the Zoyama together with Geshem, right? We are looking at the lowest world possible, you see. And, and that's why. And the second thing is that we will be able to appreciate the might and power of God. That when he changes the world existentially, we will see he's not just changing the world which is not bad to something which is better. He will change the world from something which is utterly evil, utterly corrupt, depraved, you see, to a world that is utterly spiritual. So we will then begin to realize who God is, what his might is, you see, what his power is, you see. And that's why what we are about to encounter isn't a normal redemption. It is going to be spectacular, greater than the exodus of Egypt. And that was spectacular. We realize that the Ten Plagues is spectacular. So we're going to be able to see spectacular miracles that's going to happen in this redemption. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Sure. Okay, so um, we have the five stages of human existence. Do they correlate to the five uh, levels of our neshama? It actually, yes, they do. Yes, I left that out, but you're right. In fact, that's something I want to talk about next week or the week after, whatever, right? Yes, you're right. Those five levels correspond, right, to the five levels of existence. In fact, that's what enables us to get there, to influence, to have a hold or an influence on the different existential levels, right? Which I'm going to elaborate hopefully next week. But you are 100% correct. Good observation. So, at, at each level of our existence, when from embryo to childhood, adult, adolescence, all those as we go up to death. Do we right. have a different tikkun at each stage? Yes. Each stage wants to necessitate a mission. Right. Like I said, first is the stage of spirituality. First know what the end game is. Then there's the beginning of discovery. Right. And then there's the mission itself, the growth. Then there's the, you know, the outlook at the end to enjoy, the, it should be that way anyway, the wisdom that you've accumulated through the, uh, the stage of adulthood. And then, of course, there's the actual stage where you leave the Zoyama, and that is death. And that's basically Ganeden. It's really what it is. And then after all five then there's the beginning of the transformation, which is the Messianic era. That is the beginning, the start. Right. You were saying that when we're in the embryo, the Malach teaches us our tikkun. But I right. know that we're learning the Torah. Well, Torah is everything. See, what the Malachim wants to show you as an Ishama, because you don't really have a body, you're just developing it, right? What the Malach wants to show you as an Ishama is your mission. But what's interesting, so you could say, well, why, not, why doesn't he just teach you the mission, right? 
Why does it have to teach you the whole Taryag? Remember, the Taryag is everything. And the answer is because the whole Taryag really is one concept, <clears throat> which is a elokus, divinity. And the only way you can understand your mission is within the circumstances, right, of the whole Torah. See, we, we look at Torah as fragments, but really it's all connected. So if you want to understand your mission, you have to understand it within the context of the whole Taryag. That's why the Malach teaches the Neshama the whole Taryag, because it's only within that that it understands its specific mission. So once the Neshama fully understands its mission in this world, that's when it comes out? Uh, well, well that's, that's what it learns for nine months before it comes out, right? So at the and then we know that when the child comes out, the Malach presses under its nose, and you forget the experience of being taught the Malach. And that Malach probably, by the way, is your Malach, your guardian angel. Every person has his own guardian angel, as they call it. And that Malach is your defender, your teacher, and so on. He argues for you in the Bezden. You know, it's like every nation has a Malach, right? A Tsar. Every Jew has a Malach. You see. Is there like a specific... Is, uh, how, do we, how does Hashem choose which Malach to give you? That's unknown. That is unknown. Right. That's probably what happens. That malach isn't just a separate entity. That's an outgrowth of your neshama. You see. Because the secret of the neshama, by the way, is that the existence itself emanates from your neshama. See, we don't do that. We don't see ourselves. We, we see ourselves as separate from the world, you see, but really, the world is part of us. Everything is a mystical oneness. Just like last week, I talked about the organism, that we're really one organism, you see. That's why the mitzvahs are directed, between us and God, because we're part of God. And that's why there's mitzvahs, because we're one organism, you see. That's why there are two sections of mitzvahs, because we are, like I said, we are attached to God, we are part of God, so we have mitzvahs to that part, he's part of us, or I should say we're part of him, and we're one organism, so that's why we have mitzvahs, how we're supposed to act toward our different parts, you see? I want to ask you, you were talking about how in um, one of the levels... Talking about what? In one of the levels of reality, you said that there's ghosts. Yes. How do we, at the level of Asiya, experience, like, ghosts? How do we get to that other reality? <coughs> well, there actually there are ways. See, the world of Asiya, in certain ways, is a mixture. It's a world of Zoyama, that's number one. It's a world not only of Zoyama, but it's a world of Geshem. But it's also a world of Ruchni, 
which is interesting. It's like a cowboy where everything is in it, you see. In fact, the world of Asiya has hecholos, chambers. It has levels. There's what's called seven rakim, seven heavens. You see, some of them are spiritual, but it's not the same spirituality as Yitzira and Bria. Those are angelic. But these are spirituality, which means it's the highest or the purest level of Geshem. You see, and that's why we can see a ghost. I mean, you see that the stories of ghosts in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Talmud. I mean, Rabbi Akiva saw a neshama. He could see the actual neshama in its form of what it has, a uniform of physicality, you see. So he was able to talk to it. And there's a whole story. That's the origin of Kaddish and so on. But, so therefore, a ghost is really a merger. It is a spiritual being that is part of some type of attachment to the physical world. That's what, that's what a dibuk is. You know, a dibuk is an ishama that still can connect to the world of Asiya, the world of Geshem, because it has not, you know, removed, shedded its attachment to the world of Geshem. But then it's not fully Geshem, you see? So that's, those are the concepts of ghosts, of dibuks, and so on. Those are entities that are part and part. You see. So what stage do we have to be at to access that? Well, that's a good question. You know, you, you, you know, in order to access this type, there are two ways to do it. There's what's called the uh, operational mechanisms, which are actually physical. They are directed by Seamus, names of God, and names of Malachim. In fact, there's a whole sefer written on how to do it. How you could see nishamas, which are devoid of a body, yet they're connected. You know, whether they be dibiks or they be uh, nishamas and so on. But there are ways, and they're, they're actually swarm about how to do it. How to meditate, a lot of it is predicated on meditation of divine names, of names of malochim. You know, it's all part of the world of kishuf, and part of the world of physicality and so on. And then the second way is Ruch HaKodesh, which doesn't need a mechanism. It's based purely on your elevated state of holiness, that you're actually able to see the spiritual aspect of the physical world. There are tzaddikim that can see this. One of them is called Elio, right? You can, there are tzaddikim that can see Elio Anovi. You know, there are stories about this. You know, uh, there was once a story with somebody, I forgot who the name of the tzaddik was, where she, she said to her father, I think it was Sukkot, she said, who's the guy in the white beard sitting next to you in the sukkah? So he looked at her and said, be quiet, right? Unfortunately, she probably wasn't able to sustain that. I think she died that year. Small kid. But the main idea is that there are tzaddikim that can see why? Because these neshamas are still connected to the physical world. Elio Anovi is a classic, but he's an angel that is connected, in some sense, to the physical world. Most angels are not. They are connected only to the Olim Yitzir and Bria. But there are malochim, like Eliyahu, who are connected to the Olim of Asiya, 
but they are connected to the Ruchnias, the spirituality of Asiya, you see? And that is why, if you're holy enough, you can see them just by your Tzitkas. But obviously, it's a very high level. So that's a second way of accessing these type of uh, entities in the physical world, you see. Um, I can't hear you. What? How do you explain neshamas that come to you in dreams to give you messages? That come what? They come in dreams to give you messages. Ah, because they also are connected to the physical world. You see. So therefore they can actually come. But they have to have a schos. I mean, it's not, they can't just do whatever they want. But many times a relative, I mean, there are a lot of stories about this where a relative will come to a person in a dream and warn them or come to them before they die and say, you're going to join me. You know, these these people are able to, because these neshamas that come still have a connection, a kesher to the physical world. If they didn't, they would not really be able to appear, you see. So does that mean they're not in Gan Eden yet? Does that mean what? That they, they didn't reach Gan Eden? Well, it, it, yes, it would, it would probably mean that. Although what's probably true is that a, a, a Malach, since Gan Eden is really... You see, Gan Eden is an interesting place. There's Gan Eden, which is part of, the, of a, a spiritual world, but then there's Gan Eden Atachplein, right? So it's Gan Eden, but it's still far, part of the physical world. So it depends where you wind up, you know. You could wind up in Gan Eden, which is purely spiritual, but it's still the world of Gan Eden, you see. It's not the real Olam Yitzira. Well, it is basically Olam Yitzira, but it's not the world which is pure Ruchnias, you see. And then there's Gan Eden, which has a tremendous connection with the uh, physical world. That's a very complicated you know, uh, um, situation. So this is not a simple world. What was that? If you're in the Gan Eden of Tachton, the bottom one, does that right. mean that you still have to be reincarnated to finish your Tikkun? It could mean, right, yes. It could mean that, that you can't go to the Gan Eden or Elyon because there's still aspects of Tikkun that you have to complete. But on a spiritual level, you see. So when a, a person away comes to talk to them, I can't hear you. What was that? I can't, what was that? When, a, when a person who dies who comes to speak to their family in a dream, it's because yes. they're still connected to the world? Because it comes what? They're still connected to the world? She's the, saying, well, let's say a family member comes in a dream uh, just to contact you. Not to tell you that you're dying or anything, just to contact. Does that mean that they're still connected to this world? Yes, probably. They are connected to this world. Because if they were completely free... How many years? How many years could they be connected to this world? That all depends on their level of tzitkis, or how removed they were from physicality. But there are neshamas that are completely detached, and they don't come back. You see, they don't come back. But there are uh, many neshamas that have an attachment 
to the Olam Asiyah, like I said, there's an aspect of Asiyah, right, the lowest world almost, right, that is spiritual. And that's the concept of many heavens, many uh, chambers, and so on. So technically, you don't want your, your dead relatives to come visit you because you want them to go to the alien. Correct. Well, in a certain you sense, you're right. That they pass, that they come to talk to you and give you messages that apply to what's going on in the world right yeah, now. Yeah, so then, right, then they are connected. Then they are connected to Olam Asiya, right? So, what? Could they be reincarnated at the same time as the soul is connecting to you from the previous lifetime? Well, they they can't be reincarnated. There's no Tchiyas Amesim yet. No, meaning Gilgul. Can they be a Gilgul? Yes. Yeah, there could, because there are uh, there's there's different types of what's called Gilgulim, the Anishamas that come back, right? Because they didn't do their job or finish their job or whatever, right? And then there are different parts of the Anishama that come back, you see. But there are also Anishamas that come back to assist, you know, other Anishamas because the other Anishama can't make it on its own. So that's called the Ibor, it's piggyback. Where the neshama will, you know, like sort of like go on top of, or however it connects, with the neshama in uh, in uh, in a and therefore in that body you'll have two neshamas, and all of a sudden that individual will have a much greater consciousness. It'll have some of the content or the drive, you see, of the ibur neshama, you see, and that is to help the neshama, it will assist. You see, a great deal of your consciousness depends if you have an ibu neshama. An ibu neshama is a neshama, an assistive neshama. And you will actually experience the consciousness of that uh, ibur, of that, uh, you know, it's almost like a, uh, what do you call it, uh, a birth that it's appendaged, you see. Yeah, I mean, the, the world of Gilgulim is a very complex world, and that is the essential mission. The Rebunsham is always watching out. How do I get this individual neshama to Ilam Habo? That's the game plan. But there are many side roads to get there, you see. So if the Rebunsham is seeing that a neshama is not going to make it on its own, it needs a greater drive, a greater, you know, uh, level of consciousness and awareness and so on, then he will assign an ishaman to help out. And usually that involves some type of merit, some type of schus, you know. So it's really a very complicated affair. But in the end, it all works out. That's the critical thing to know. You see, everybody will get to ilm habo with an incomprehensible existential state. And that's what the game plan is. So, uh, uh, so then, for a soul, un- a husband and wife is technically one neshama. Yes. So do they share the same, somewhat the same tikkun? Generally speaking, yes. 
That's why they want, it's really a team effort. Because the tikkun that they're assigned to directly connected to the Shurish Neshama. The, the tikkun that we must do, or our mission, isn't arbitrary. It is direct. It is purposeful. And it is connected to the Shurish Neshama, the type of soul that we have. The problem is we don't know what, what the assignment is determined by. Nobody knows. Only God knows the internals of a neshama, and therefore what tikkun it needs in the what's called the tikkun hakloli, in the overall or the general tikkun, which is what everybody is striving. All we know is that everybody has an assignment. Everybody, based on the root neshama, but we don't know why this assignment is designated for that neshama. That is unknown. You see. And God keeps all of this in his mind. You see. So we technically share a guardian angel with our husband? What was that? You share a guardian angel with your spouse? Yes. There would be a guardian angel over each person of the team and the team in general. And that malach is directly connected to your tikkun. You see. There's nothing that's arbitrary. Everything has a logic behind it. Of which we will find out in the messianic era. And that's a lot of information. You know? Okay. I hope everybody enjoyed this year and gained a lot of valuable information.